The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. The Pre-Med Year, session number 515. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me. I have an exciting guest today, someone who I met at a conference and asked him to be on the podcast, and he is here. He did not disappoint. We talk about his journey to medicine, his journey to media, and kind of where the future lies in terms of post-COVID life and anti-science, anti-doctor, anti-whatever rhetoric. I have a great conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minute brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. If you are struggling, trying to figure out where to start, go to blueprintmcat.com, sign up for their free account, register an account, and use their free study planner tool. Let the tool know when you're planning on taking the MCAT, what your schedule looks like, and let it create a custom plan for you that you can follow all for free. Go to blueprintmcat.com. All right, let's go ahead and say hello to Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. I've been looking forward to this, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I've Thank been looking you. forward to it. I think maybe a little bit more than you. Um, my favorite question <laughs> to start, when did you first realize you wanted to be a doctor? Um, I remember this actually pretty clearly. It was I was um, 13 years old. Uh, my, my grandfather, my mom's dad, had uh, gotten really sick. He had a stroke and he was in the hospital. And nobody in my family was a doctor. So I didn't really have that exposure to medicine. And it was kind of one of those things where my parents are both engineers, both mathematics, you know, that was their discipline. And (laughs) that was kind of what I thought I was going to do. I think that everyone just thought that I would do that. And, um, and then I went and spent a lot of time with my grandfather in the hospital Mm. and really, you know, I, I was young still, but I sort of saw this, this, this career, you know, people (laughs) taking care of each other and the, the doctor's, I still don't know if his doctors thought I was annoying or or <laughs> inquisitive, but I asked a lot of questions, and yeah. uh, I think that was it. That was I was pretty hooked at that point. Yeah. So basically, the same story that most pre meds have is like some personal or family illness injury. That's like, oh, there there's this whole world out here where I yeah. can I can help people. So it's it's so funny. I think. Yeah. Although although it's interesting because I think a lot of people. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's data on this, but I think a lot of people of my generation, their parents or somebody in their family was a doctor yep. and they had that sort of, they had that sort of fam- family tug toward it. And at least when I went to med school, that's what I heard from a lot of my classmates. Yeah. So that was, that was just a little bit different. And, um, and also, you know, if you're coming from a family of engineers saying, Hey, I want to go to med school and then do a residency for people who aren't in that world, the idea of that's a lot of school, a, a lot. lot of tuition, a lot of time, you know, is, is something they have to get their heads around. Yeah. 
And and I think you did a, a BSMD program where you went to University of Michigan, kind of combined applying for undergrad and medical school together. Is, is that correct? That's right. Yep, I did. It was called Inaflex. Okay. Um, not Interflex, which is its most common mispronunciation. Yeah. Inaflex um, was a program at Michigan. I guess there are several around the country yeah. where it basically, um, you know, depending on when you start, you could take a year or two off of your, your time and you're automatically accepted into medical school yeah. from high school. What was the goal behind that? Was that just making mm. it faster, less tuition? What My goal or their yeah. goal? <laughs> your Your goal. Yeah. I mean, look, Ryan, I mean, to be perfectly honest. So if, if you kind of get the backdrop out with my parents and they're kind of like, okay, this takes a long time, this yeah. whole thing. If we could save time, we could save money. Um, yeah. Why wouldn't you apply for this? Yeah. I was 16 years old. I Now I'm a parent of kids who are older than that. And I know that they don't know for certain what they want to do. So I think making that decision at 16 was it's not uh, a reflection of maturity as much as it is, you know, your brain just doesn't develop to the point where you can yeah. make those sorts of decisions. So the thinking was that my parents said this would be a good idea to save time and, and money. Yeah. Have you ever looked back on that decision and go, I wish I would have taken some time off. I wish I would have slowed down mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a non-intuitive thing. I think when you are, when you're accepted to medical school right out of high school, you, my college experience was different, I think, as a result. I got to take classes that I probably wouldn't have taken mm. um, uh, because I would think, oh, this is how this is going to help me for medical school. You know, uh, back in those days, it was, you know, pretty hardcore science curriculum that you were sort of expected to follow. I think it's changed a lot, frankly, over the last few decades. But at that time, I ended up probably taking classes I otherwise wouldn't have. There was an urge to slow down, I think, at times, but yeah. I did get to sort of branch out, if you will, in ways that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a good part of it. I know Mount Sinai has a very similar program that you apply to as a, a sophomore. And that's that's the, mm. the impetus is instead of going and studying for the MCAT and taking biochemistry, like yeah. get into med school and then go figure out what else you're passionate about. So I, I, I like those types of programs. They're interesting. Yeah, for sure. So your, your grandfather has a stroke, obviously um, neurology related uh, type mm-hmm. experience. Do you think that was the, the draw for you to neurosurgery or were there other things that you experienced in medical school? That's like, Oh, like I, I want to do that. No, that, that wasn't the, that wasn't the draw interestingly enough. And when I, when I started, you know, medical school, sort of, you know, partway through Inaflex, I thought I was going to do pediatrics. I, um, I, you know, once I got on the wards and did rotations there, mm-hmm. I just always felt that the pediatric doctors were some of just the best doctors in the hospital. And the reason being that I think it was something about children that was just caring for sick children was so galvanizing, yeah. you know, you know, and some of the other services, it seemed like people were like, you know, ready to get out of there as quickly as they could. Whereas <laughs> the pediatricians are always like, how can I help? How can I, you know, I'm staying to help, you know, take care of these kids. And I just thought, look, if you're going to do this field of medicine, do something that you're really passionate about. And so peds was, was, I think my thinking at least initially. Yeah. And then, and then what was that? Good question. Well, and then, and then like, I, I, I'm pretty fickle, I guess, in retrospect, I hadn't really thought about it, but then I, I actually um, did a, did surgery rotations yeah. when I was in, uh, you know, my third and fourth years. And I really, I did like surgery a lot. I liked being in the operating room. I liked the technical aspects of it. I felt like it was something that I was good at, you know, when you feel like you're, you 
are able to have some skills in a particular area, you gravitate toward that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, interestingly, Ryan, I started in general surgery thinking I very much wanted to do transplant surgery. And I was fascinated by immunology. And I thought, okay, immunology and, and surgery, transplant surgery, that makes perfect sense. So I started actually in general surgery and I switched to neurosurgery uh, my second year. Interesting. So, so yeah, so a couple of big changes in my career, you know, and again, I think this gets back to the first question you asked. I, you know, you're pretty young yeah. making these decisions, 22 years old. And, um, my kid's not quite 22, but again, it's like, that's, that's a lot to ask of somebody to make those decisions. I think most people make them stick with them. Great. I ended up sort of switching from, from peds to general surgery to neurosurgery. Yeah. So, so again, like why neurosurgery? What, what was it about the brain that, that seems like it fascinated you then and continues to fascinate you now? I, th- I think it was, it was two things really. I, I went, once I did a rotation in neurosurgery and spent time with the, the, the neurosurgeons, um, my, my decision was pretty clear. I did that after I was already a resident. And I think it was a couple things. One is that the brain is just it's, it's very meta, right. To just like (laughs) talk about operating on the brain. I mean, I thought that, you know, 30 years ago when I first started doing this and I still think that it's just, there's something it's, it's a tremendous privilege to say that, look, we're, you know, this thing that is, that constitutes you, your brain, the, the most enigmatic three and a half pounds of tissue in the universe. We're going to spend our lives trying to understand it better. We're not going to totally understand it, but we're going to, there's never going to be a shortage of, of things to try and understand about the brain. Yeah. I think that was quite attractive just in terms of a curious mind. But I also, you know, going back to the technical aspects, you know, I find that this, there's surgeons, you know, and, and I'll simplify for a second because there's obviously a great diversity of surgeons, but there are definitely people in my class who were, came at it from almost athletics. Mm. They were smart. You know, they did, they did well in school. It wasn't that. It's just that, what they didn't, what they were doing when they weren't doing that was playing basketball, doing athletic things, all that. They were, you know, that was their lifestyle. Other people were much more scientific minded, you know, they were in the lab, but both types of people are in neurosurgery. And I think I had sort of a combination of both. I really like sports. I really like doing things with my hands. Neurosurgery was arguably from a technical standpoint, the most challenging operations and I, I, I thought that I was good at it, good enough at it, I should say, you know, yeah. uh, to, to gravitate towards that strength. Yeah. Looking back on your, your training, medical school, residency, et cetera, what was the hardest thing for you going through that process? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I will say this, and I mean this with honesty, I do look back at that experience very fondly mm-hmm. overall. Um, just, just as a general rule, because I think, you know, the rap is, you know, certainly when we were training that, you know, it's hundred hours a week and sure, you know, how do you have a life? I think the, I think the biggest challenge, I think, um, like I'm a, I'm a total family guy. I, I'm, I'm married. I have three teenage daughters and I kind of knew that I was that kind of guy probably early in life. You know, I'm just, that's my personality. I wasn't some you know, big party guy, you know, whatever it might be. But when you kind of know that you're a family guy, you, I think it, the hardest part in some ways I was, you, you have to postpone certain aspects of your life. You don't have to, but you're just so busy during residency. Yeah. You don't think that you can um, do something that's, that's meaningful in terms of raising a family. At least I didn't at yeah. that point. I want to, I want to just be clear. There are people who've done it and they've done a remarkably good job. I have friends who, who had families and kids during residency. I was blown away by it. For me personally, I just felt like I was so into my 
my um, residency that it would have been hard for me to to give the attention that I yeah. thought that deserved. So you end up postponing life, I think, a bit. There's a prolonged adolescence about it. There can be fun aspects of that, but I think it was probably as well the hardest thing. You see a lot of your friends sort of progressing in life faster than you are. Yeah. One of the most common questions that, that comes up when I'm, I'm talking to other physicians is, is that work-life balance. Now, obviously, on top of being a physician, you're a, a news person, a personality doing lots of other things. How do you find that balance and, and what, what skills or tools do you utilize to, to maintain that family and, and life balance? Well, um, I, I think when it comes to bifurcating a career, I'll start there. You know, and I think a lot of people, um, and it's becoming more common to have sort of bifurcated careers a little bit. You know, I'm a, I'm a medical person, neurosurgeon, but I do media. There's people who do, you know, X and Y. And sometimes those things are very related, sometimes not as much. I think one valuable thing that I've learned from all this, and someone kind of gave me this, this uh, insight early on in my career, is that, and it's going to sound obvious, but to, to enact it requires you to be deliberate. You have to just be really honest mm-hmm. about what you're going to be able to deliver to each of those, those jobs in this case. Um, how, you know, and that can be as didactic as how much time, what do you think your compensation should be, you know? And I went and had conversations with all my partners in neurosurgery at the university. I had conversations with a lot of my team at, uh, you know, the media companies and just say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. This is my life. I operate every Monday. Yeah, I see patients in the office on Thursdays. I operate every other Friday. You know, that's my life. And, you know, and so everyone's sort of in on it as opposed to you or anybody listening, frankly, because I know the personality types. Um, you think you want to give 100% to each thing and you can't do it. Yeah. And again, that sounds obvious, but you're going to end up you're going to end up um, not doing a very good job either. And yeah. the jack of all trades sort of phenomenon. I think in terms of work life balance, I guess, you know. I, again, this is, a, this is a, just my own insight. I think I got to be humble about this. Everyone lives their life differently. But I made it a point early on of not throwing up walls between my work life and my family life. I think a lot of times because I'm, I'm home from the office and I'm not talking about work anymore. You know? And for me, you know, I travel, I go cover a war, cover a natural disaster, do a really fascinating operation, uh, you know, whatever it might be. As my kids grew up, that's part of our bonding time. I would t- tell them these these parts of my my life, and, and I think they found it interesting. And oftentimes, when you're raising three teenage girls, you get mocked a lot for the things <laughs> you've done. But yeah, but I, I I just think that letting them in on your life, as opposed to throwing up a wall, is probably how I would best summarize family life balance adage that I live by. Yeah, I love it. So. You're you're a physician, you're successful by all accounts in, in society, and then you decide, I want I want more at some, at some point in your life. What was the impetus to, to go join a media network and, and be more than just a physician? This was this was pretty um, in some ways serendipitous, you know. But but um, there there is a connective tissue here, you know. What I I I think like a lot of physicians, nurses, you know, people who are in the healthcare world. You know, I became interested in health policy um, during during med school, during even the end of college. I was I think I, there was a class that I wrote a paper on it and it got me hooked on on thinking about this. And I started writing for magazines and just, you know, you know late teen, early 20 level writing. It was nothing you know to, to write home about, but but I got it got me interested. And ultimately, I went and uh, applied for a thing known as a White House fellowship. 
which is a, a um, kind of a mid-career level fellowship that more people go to the White House and you work in the executive branch. It's a leadership fellowship. And my, my um, thing that I really focused on there was health policy. Mm-hmm. And when I left that, um, I had met a lot of people in media who were interested in these topics, wanted me to talk about it, but I was not really that focused on doing any kind of media. I was on faculty at the University of Michigan. And then I left to take a job at Emory mm-hmm. uh, in Atlanta, which was also the headquarters of CNN. And I ran into some of the same guys. I literally actually ran into them at an airport, some of the same guys <laughs> uh, who I'd met at the White House. And they said, hey, do you want to talk about health policy on television? Do you want to do what we were talking about a few years ago? Yeah. And I thought, okay. So I was going to, you know, Ryan, it was going to be like a, a probably like weekend morning show, Sunday morning <laughs> show, talking head panel. That's, yeah. That was the original sort of thinking. And most of my life was going to be neurosurgery. Three weeks after I started, three and a half weeks, 9-11 happened. This yep. was 2001. And and they basically looked at me and said, hey, you know, um, we're probably not going to be talking about health policy for a while. Yeah. But you are a doctor working at an international news network. And look what's happening in the world. Do you want to do you want to you know, talk about this stuff? Anthrax. even." And then I ended up covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, just about every conflict and natural disaster since then. Yeah. I I think the biggest the biggest takeaway that I get listening to you is that you have been willing to explore passions uh and be very intentional about it it sounds like of of not uh, kind of pigeonholing yourself as a neurosurgeon, as a doctor, and that's what you do and you keep your head down, but exploring other things. Would would you say that's kind of a uh, a fair um kind of critique yeah. of your path? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think what, I think what you're saying is right. I think there's two ways to look at that. One is, you know, to be open to new ideas and not pigeonholing yourself, like you say. But I think the other thing is is as doctors or or probable doctors <laughs> that are listening, you know, yeah. it's a big field. Yeah. I mean, you know, how how much we consider pigeonholing versus just widening the aperture mm-hmm. of what is possible within your field. I think. The outcome is the same, but I think there's two different ways of looking at it. If you were to ask me what my passions are today, I think they're the same passions that I had 25, 30 years ago, which are, which is still health and you know being a doctor, but also the policy of health and how we think about the country's health, you know, more public health sort of lens on things. That, that's always what I've been interested in. I started writing about policy because I felt like, again, clinicians should be part of that discussion. When I was writing about this in the late 90s, I mean, it was easy to get published because nobody in the medical field was really writing about it. Yeah. So, you know, um, those passions are the same. I've just widened the aperture, if you will. Yeah. Uh, all the exploration that you've done throughout the years now, uh, still uh, a physician practicing. What do you think that the pre-med student listening to this that is going to go through training and come out as an attending at some point in the future? What challenges are they going to face that are different than, than you face coming up? Well, that, that's that's a, that's a really important question. I mean, I think that, I don't know that they're necessarily different challenges, but I think some challenges have been amplified and they'll continue to be amplified. I mean, fundamentally, if you're practicing in the United States, you are joining a system that spends about $4 trillion a year um, to, to, to run. And, you know, if you look at metrics that I think matter and metrics that hist- history will, will judge us on, we don't fare very well. So that that's a problem. And I think that that's, that's, it's a challenge. It's a worthy challenge. 
And I think that as, as you know, you look at what has been happening in all sorts of different fields, there's going to be uh, an increased desire to, to address that, you know, I mean, you can't continue to spend that kind of money with these outcomes. So how do you, what are you going to do about that? Part of it's going to come from the great scientists and advancing therapies and making things less invasive and shorter times in hospitals. But I think a lot of it's going to be in terms of how we, we think about what constitutes good health. Do we focus on, you know, all the things, you know, and I think most people who probably think about medicine in any way, shape or form know that we are a very sick society. And, and, you know, in, in a way, it's a society that is uh, spending so much because of these high rates of obesity and diabetes and things like that. That's probably gonna be the biggest challenge, I think, and the biggest opportunity, because I think we can make some significant inroads into addressing that challenge. Yeah, I, I think kind of similar to the the pigeonholing uh, that a lot of people see when they, they get out in their career and like, I'm a doctor, and that's all I do. A lot of pre-med students are kind of bright-eyed, bushy tail. I want to change the world. And then they kind of lose that through their training. How much can a single person going through this training amplify their voice to make a difference, to, to be the person that goes and, and makes change and changes our healthcare system and, and is, is helping be the, the change agent for all of this? I think I think there's, I mean, I, there's, I have two schools of thought on this, and I, it's funny because I think if you would have asked me this 25 years ago, I would have answered differently. But now that I have kids of my own of this age, I, it does change my entire perspective on everything, Ryan. I'm yeah. telling you. But I think first of all, I think there's lots of opportunities to make meaningful change in healthcare because first of all, it is ripe for change. But also, um, you, you know, some of the most meaningful work that I've done has been work that I've done overseas, you know, being able to, to export some of the incredible resources of a country like the United States and and um, make a real difference overseas. I don't think I'm at all being um, uh, uh, Pollyannish or in any way when I say, look, I mean, if you're if you're curious about making a change. You've picked the right field. I mean, you make the people who are going into medicine, they make a change every day. And I know that, that that's something that, you know, that's what my parents would tell me. Truth is, like, you are going to become the most important person to countless people you've never even met. I mean, you'll be the most important person in their lives as a doctor, uh, as, a, as a healthcare person. It, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, I, <laughs> I've done all these things in my life. I go to a restaurant with my kids and, you know, the person who is in the booth over kind of leans over and I didn't see them when I walked in one of my patients and spends the next 10 minutes telling my kids now who are these teenage girls, you know, his, his positive reflections of our relationship because I was his doctor. Where else in society does that happen? Yeah. I tell you, most of it's the opposite in society nowadays. So, yeah, you get to make a change every day, you know, in, in your life. And that's that's what I would tell my own kids if, if, if they were thinking about going into medicine. They're a little young for it yet, but, you know, if they, if they said that, that's what I would tell them. Yeah. What skills do you think uh, someone coming up nowadays needs to to be a great physician? Obviously, through the pandemic, we, we've seen... Um, a lot of distrust in science, distrust in experts, distrust in medicine uh, that I, I think is amplified the, the more we, we kind of go along. What, yeah. what uh, for a student coming up now, what can they do, a class they can take, uh, things that they can do to, to make sure that how they communicate and what they communicate helps kind of bridge that divide? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that in those same polls that talk about distrust in science, one thing that one thing that always um, jumps out at me is that one of the some among the most trusted people in society are people's own individual physicians. Yeah. So you know, whereas you know, a head of a big scientific organization such as CDC or whatever. Uh, trust may have gone down. People's personal physicians, personal medical teams are still uh, among the very, the most trusted in society. So, you know, keep keep that in mind. It's all is not lost in this regard. <laughs> but but I think one other stat that sort of jumped out at me during the pandemic, and I think maybe you and I even talked about it when we were at that event together. But um, scientists and and medical people have increasingly been seen as arrogant, mm. and this this was. Um, something that's been building, I guess, even pre-pandemic. But the idea that, that scientific people um, are seen as arrogant, I think, is, is probably part of the issue here in terms of the mistrust. It's not the whole issue, but in terms of what people can do about it, I think it's, you know, I remind my own residents and medical students that, um, especially if you're taking care of patients in the hospital, you're, you're taking care of someone at a very vulnerable time in their lives the the picture that you're getting of the person is not who they are typically because this is a very unusual situation they are now in in the hospital right uh, sometimes very worried about living or dying or whatever it may be and and so the humility that i think most frankly physicians have needs to really manifest i mean medicine is a is a there's a humbling sort of uh, a, a humility to the to the training process or even the scientific process you have to put forth a theory then you have to test it over and over again and see if you're right and you know figure out your conclusions there's a humility to the scientific process but i think sometimes the way people interact with each other lacks that so we think of medicine like we think of math math two plus two is four there's an absolute yeah. medicine's not that way it's it's a probabilistic sort of field and i think to always be able to to embody that in your language and your communication i think is important um we're not certain of many things in life and you know i think we just have to make sure that we don't come off as arrogant or too didactic yeah when you look at at your career uh, as a physician uh, as someone in media helping communicate science and, and healthcare, what do you want your legacy to be um that's a good question. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about that much. You know, I think that the, I think what I've, first of all, who, you know, I'll be dead. Right? <laughs> so it's like, what do I care about the legacy? You know, <laughs> I mean, I know I'll be dead. So at that point <laughs> we're talking about these topics, yep. but I, I, um, I think that what I was I, certainly being a good, a good family person, you know, a good husband, a good, a good, dad, as I said to you early on, I kind of always envisioned myself being that person. And I do consider it one of the great privileges of my life to be able to do this, to have a family. So that would be a big part of the legacy. But I think that what I, what I really try to do more than anything is explain hard things to people, mm-hmm. explain complicated concepts and do complicated things, you know, in the operating room and, and that, that, that aspect of medicine. You know, I think, um, I think societies move forward by constantly pushing the boundaries. And I think um, that's, that's what I tried to do, I think, in my fields, you know, when I'm when I'm explaining things to people, it's to allow larger and larger percentages of people to understand a concept helps move society forward. Um, in the operating room, just refining those skills over and over again, could help someone heal, I guess, 
I don't know if that, that's a long legacy, I guess, but I, I think I, I was never a guy who liked to sit on the sidelines. I like to get in there and, and do something, yeah. you know, just keep moving forward. I know that we're all going to die. Um, I take time to enjoy life as well as a result. And I really try and be present in my life. But um, those are probably the, the big traits that I would be proud to be described by. Yeah. At the start of the pandemic, you started a, a daily podcast, getting very ambitious there that you've transitioned now <laughs> into uh, chasing life, um, uh, which everyone watching and listening can can go check out wherever podcasts are, are listened to. Uh, and that you're doing more exploring there of of pushing those boundaries, uh, a recent episode about psychedelics, which uh, mm. are becoming all the rage. I know here in Colorado, where I am, we just passed a law uh, or approved uh, passing a law to to allow ketamine and MDMA and therapy. Um, yeah. where, where do you see um, chasing life fitting into um, the medical world versus the, the lay world, the lay person world? I, I think it is. I think it is a bridge. Um, I think in some ways it's a podcast manifestation of what I've tried to do through books and through television and other things. Is that, you know, I mean, fundamentally, I'm. <laughs> this is always one of those those sort of humbling things. But like, I report on all these things. I didn't actually do those studies. I didn't do that work. I'm simply trying to tell the stories of the people who did. Yeah. And, and trying to explain it again, that explanatory journalism. And I think chasing life is sort of that way as well. Um, whether, you know, this, la this uh, most recent episode about psychedelics, but really understanding like, what does psilocybin do to the brain? Mm. Like how is we, everyone knows selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. Okay. So that's an interesting thing that serotonin sticking around longer can help you feel better from depression. How does psilocybin fit into that? How does ketamine fit into that? And why is ketamine called a rescue suicide rescue drug? So, it, like, there was if if you explain the how of things um, and the why of things, people are more likely to remember those things. And that that's I think what chasing life is really about. Or you know, a lot of the themes this this season were just about the senses and how we actually all sense the world. Fit very well into my deep love of the brain. But also this this recognition that Ryan, you and I are talking on a Zoom call right now. We can see each other, but we're having a totally different experience. Yeah. You know what you see exactly, what you hear, how the air feels around you, what you've tasted recently. I mean, just our our sensory bubble, our Umwelt, is something that's just always fascinated me. German word for sensory bubble, according to Ed Young. <laughs> um, it's it's um, so it's it's just a chance to explore these things that I've always been interested in, but be that bridge between what the medical world knows and is investigating and learning and and uh, and everyone else. Yeah. As we wrap up here, what final words of wisdom do you have for this uh, pre med student, this budding medical student, budding healthcare professional <laughs> who may have aspirations to be you in the future? Um, well, be careful what you wish for. I think what I do for a living, you know, um, may not even be a thing in, in 10, 15 years. It'll be something else. Yeah. And I think that's the first thing I would say is that many of the jobs or many of the specific jobs or specific ways that you'll spend your time are maybe things that haven't even been thought of yet. So, you know, in that sense, do uh, widen the aperture, you know, in, in terms of how you think about medicine and the career. But, I, I, you know, as someone who's truly straddled two different worlds of media and medicine, I've chosen to continue to, to make, keep medicine a huge part of my life. You know, I operate 
every week. I'm seeing patients in the office every week and make rounds, all that, because I love it. And because as I've traveled the world and, and seen all these different sectors of society, being a doc, being in the healthcare profession is the most rewarding. There's, there's no question about it. it they're, they're just, you cannot duplicate that in anywhere else that I can think of in life. And it's not to minimize other careers by any means, but days I'm operating, days I'm seeing patients, I spring out of bed in the morning. I know what I'm on earth for those days. I know my purpose. And, you know, you you want that. Obviously, if you're a pre-med or you're a medical student, that's what you anticipate that's driving you. But I'm telling you, it's true. 30 years later, and for a lot of people who said this in other fields, it, that 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 daily sort of that daily satisfaction starts to to wear down a bit more quickly taking care of humans being given that awesome responsibility there's nothing like it in the world all right so there you have it again dr sanjay gupta you can find his podcast You can find his podcast, Chasing Life with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, anywhere you listen to podcasts like this one. Go, go take a listen to it. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.